This is the Practical Teaching Tips Podcast. I am your host, Richard James Rogers, high school science and chemistry teacher and author of the award-winning book, The Quick Guide to Classroom Management. Hello everybody and a very warm welcome to today's episode on the Practical Teaching Tips podcast. I'm your host Richard James Rogers and today I'm probably going to be talking about one of the most controversial issues in teaching today and that's the issue of including or providing or building or forcing all students to use gender-neutral toilets in schools. And there's a little bit of background as to why I'm recording this episode today. As a, as a blogger myself, and you can check out my blog for teachers, by the way, um, at richardjamesrogers.com, um, but as a blogger, I can see where my traffic is coming from, and I can see which blog posts are the most popular. And probably for the past two years now, a blog post I wrote about gender-neutral toilets in school has been my second most popular blog post for about two years running, as I've said, uh, just behind um, the uh, importance of patience in teaching. But anyway, about a month and a half ago, about two months ago, I saw a really big spike in traffic to this gender-neutral toilets in schools blog post. And it was very unusual. All of a sudden, I was getting hundreds and hundreds of um, views of this blog post each day, uh, whereas normally I'd get maybe 100 to 150 per day. And it was a short spike. It lasted maybe a week or two weeks. And I decided to investigate, you know, why did this happen? Why did I get such a sudden uh, spike in traffic? Well, I traced it down to Twitter and a number of parents on Twitter had noticed that their schools had installed covertly gender-neutral toilets um, over the um, summer vacation or over whatever vacation it might have been, like a half-term vacation. And now suddenly the students in the schools were finding that they had to use these toilets. They didn't have a choice anymore over using boys' and girls' toilets. And what a lot of these parents and teacher parents on Twitter were reporting was that the children didn't want to use the toilets. And it wasn't just one or two, it was a lot of people. A lot of teachers, a lot of parents who were voicing their concerns because their children were holding in their, um, how would I describe it? They, well, they were not going to the toilet, basically, because they didn't have boys' and girls' toilets anymore. And one user on Twitter was um, was was writing about how um, her daughter didn't use the gender-neutral toilets because all they were being used for was sex and vaping. Now, as if normal everyday educators couldn't see that one coming, you know. So this really 
really got me looking at this topic again, topic again because I wrote this blog post about gender-neutral toilets in schools in um, January 2020. And it kind of, like I said, it kind of got some good traffic um, since that time, but it, it, there was a peak in traffic. So I revisited this topic and it's happening a lot now. There's a lot of schools out there, particularly in Western democracies like the United Kingdom, Australia, United States, etc., who are covertly installing gender-neutral toilets in schools and then students find now that they have to use them. So uh, you can't have, for example, girls going into um, their own safe space area and talking with each other, um, you know, socialising because, you know, toilet areas are not just places where you, you do your natural functions of excretion. They are communal areas for children. You know, they are. And in some schools, they double up as changing rooms as well. Um, but for these students, they that was removed from them. And they had to use these gender-neutral toilets. Um, so what I'm going to do today is read to you the blog post I wrote. And hopefully you'll find it interesting. I'll be going through a lot of things. Um, there's some things that I can't really verbalize through a podcast episode because they're very visual and I'll have to direct you to the blog post itself but I hope this will be interesting um, and before I begin what I want to say is before anyone calls me a transphobe or a bigot or whatever which I know is inevitable what I'll say to you is I've got no problem at all with a fully conscious adult um, becoming whatever they want to be. You want to be transgender, you want to be pansexual, you want to be a lesbian, you want to be bisexual, whatever it is. If you're a fully conscious adult, that's what you want to do, go for it. Why would I have a problem with that? It's your life. It's your life. But when we start to see children, especially small children, being heavily coerced into decisions that may that may not be the best for their long-term health that's when I think teachers like me need to speak up and say something so um, I'm going to read the blog post to you now so enjoy last week I wrote a short blog post about the issue of gender-neutral toilets and how some schools in Australia and the UK are now forcing all students to use them the reasoning that most schools give as to why these toilets need to be installed is that they are inclusive and that they make transgender students feel more comfortable. Tremendous opposition to the introduction of gender-neutral toilets in schools has already been voiced by parents, students, local MPs and members of local communities. At Deansfield Primary School in the UK, for example, parents launched a petition to remove the unisex toilets that were covertly installed over the summer vacation, with one main concern being that menstruating girls felt as though their privacy was being invaded. Many girls were refusing to go to the toilet during the day and were at risk of picking up urinary tract infections as a result. I made my opinions clear last week and I still stand by them. 
I made the point that no school should impose new restrictions or radical changes on their students without first consulting with parents. This was a classic mistake made at Deansfield, and it backfired dramatic, dramatically. Consequently, I did actually email the school asking for an update on the situation, but I have thus far received no response, and that still applies today as I record this on the 5th of December 2021. I also questioned the underlying concept of a child being able to consent to being transgender, along with the surgery and puberty-blocking chemicals that go along with that. And by the way, we still do not know what the long-term health effects are of puberty-blocking chemicals. When that same child cannot consent to sexual activity, cannot drink alcohol, is not considered to be mature enough to vote, and cannot legally drive. And as a little side note here, everybody, this is not in the blog post, but something I just want to say, I have yet to receive any reasoned, logical, reasonable response to that question. How can a child consent to puberty-blocking chemicals and consent to life-changing surgery to become transgender when that same child cannot consent to sex cannot drink alcohol, is not considered to be mature enough to vote, and cannot legally drive. If you have a response for me, please send it in. I would be very happy to read that, and I'd be happy to make a podcast around it if uh, if I feel that, um, if I feel I could draw it into a podcast and, and talk about it for long enough. Um, and if you've got a response to that question I've just posed, let me know, um, or post a comment on the blog post itself. I will link the um, uh, blog post in this episode description. And if, if your comment is um, polite and reasonable, I'll put it in the blog post and, and let people see it. So anyway, I'll carry on now. Um, so that blog post earned me some haters with one individual commenting on my Facebook posts with expletives, profanities and explicit prose. That person was subsequently banned from the Teachers in Thailand Facebook group by the admin. And if you want to see what that person sent to me, you can see it on the blog post. I've, of course, blocked out the person's name for anonymity, and I've removed the main parts of the expletives, but you can use your imagination and figure out what the person said. So this is a very triggering topic. And rather than briefly summarise some of the more fashionable stories by citing news articles, I'd like to perform a brief investigation of some of the research that feeds into this topic. I won't have time to cover absolutely everything, but I will provide a synopsis of some of the main findings. The architectural approach. With privacy being cited as an issue for menstruating girls who are forced to use gender-neutral washrooms, one solution could be a functional one. Change the architecture so that privacy is no longer invaded. This is exactly the point that Sanders and Stryker make in their paper entitled Stalled Gender-Neutral Public Bathrooms, which you will find in the South Atlantic Quarterly, 2016, and the citation is is given in the blog post. As a combined effort between a world-renowned architect, Sanders, 
and an LGBT professor of gender and women's studies, Stryker, this paper stands out for its unique take on unisex bathrooms with a suggested floor plan included in the content. And if you want to see the floor plan that Sanders and Stryker suggest for uh, anywhere that wants to have a gender-neutral uh, washroom or a unisex toilet or a unisex, uh, you know, washroom facility toilet area, then you can see that on the blog post, which is linked in this episode description. Now, my conclusion about this is as follows. I have a number of issues with the architectural approach proposed by Sanders and Stryker. Number one, the design still includes an area outside the cubicles where boys and girls have to mix and mingle. I think this removes the communal factor of bathrooms, as girls and boys do like to use toilet areas for chatting and socialising with their own gender. I'm still not sure if menstruating girls would be happy mingling with boys outside the cubicle areas. Number two, massive investment would be needed to change current girls' stroke boys' washrooms in schools to the communal format shown in my blog post for most schools. This investment seems superfluous to needs when one considers that less than 2% of American children identify as being transgender. In addition to this, it's confusing to consider that transgender students cannot use current boys' or girls' washrooms. If you are biologically a boy, but you officially identify as a girl, then you could use the girls' washrooms, vice versa if you're biologically a female. But is the solution really as simple as that? Public space is not a neutral space. According to Kyla Bender-Baird, who's a gender-segregated... Uh, sorry, let me go back to that. According to Kyla Bender-Baird, gender-segregated bathrooms are the result of, and I quote, technologies of disciplinary power upholding the gender binary by forcing people to choose between men's and women's rooms. That's some profound statement. I had no idea that I was being powerfully controlled and being forced to choose which washrooms to enter. I thought I was consciously making a choice to enter the men's washroom. Now, who is Kyla, anyway? Well, she is a, soci a sociologist at the CUNY Graduate Center in New York, and she was writing um, in Gender, Place and Culture, a journal of feminist geography. Um, that's volume 23, 2016, issue 7. And she stated the following, and I quote, The resulting lack of safe access to public restrooms is an everyday reality for those who fall outside of gender binary norms. Faced with a built environment that denies their existence and facilitates gender policing, I argue that trans and gender non-conforming people sometimes engage in situational docility. Bodies are adjusted to comply with the cardinal rule of gender, to be readable at a glance, which is often due to safety concerns. Changing the structure of bathrooms to be gender inclusive and or neutral may decrease gender policing in bathrooms and the need for this situational docility allowing trans and gender non-conforming people to pee in peace. 
So it seems as though Kyler supports the functional stroke architectural approach then, advocating for the creation of washrooms that are built in such a way that anyone can use them. My conclusion is, I don't agree with Kyler on her point that gender-segregated washrooms were invented as a human control system. The official history certainly doesn't support this, and I'll be talking about that in a moment. One thing I will say in Kyler's defence is that if an architectural solution is found that is cost-effective and satisfies the needs of the majority, and that's men and women, that's binary men and women, or binary boys and girls who do not wish to change their gender, whilst also meeting the needs of the tiny minority, who are the transgender individuals, then that could be a way forward. Potty Politics and the Ladies' Sanitary Association An interesting paper from the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, which is called The Restroom Revolution, Unisex Toilets and Campus Politics, gave the timeline leading up to the gender-segregated toilets we have today. And here's a brief summary, and it's very, very, very interesting. And this really surprised me, actually, everybody, when I read this, because it's, it's fascinating. So, 1905. The first women's bathroom was installed in London after a tremendous effort and fight by the Ladies' Sanitary Association and similar organisations, along with support from the famous George Bernard Shaw. And this really surprised me, I have to say. I thought that women's restrooms were a thing long before 1905. 1970s America. Court cases were still being fought over the segregation of black and white toilet facilities. Prior to this early toilet integration period, blacks and whites couldn't drink from the same fountains or use the same toilet facilities. Note from me, I think this was a humiliating and disgraceful period in human history. The fact that fully conscious adults penned policy to the effect of segregating toilets on the basis of race is frightening and baffling to me. And I think that most people today would agree with that. I mean, it's absolutely disgusting that there was a period in history where a certain race had to use a certain set of toilets and a certain race were given a different set of toilets. That's absolutely disgraceful. And um, I certainly hope that that is never, ever, ever repeated. Um, so just to make that clear. In autumn of 2001, now this is where it gets very interesting, Several students gathered at the Stonewall Centre, which is an LGBT educational resource centre at the University of Massachusetts. They formed a special group to work on transgender issues on campus. Their efforts eventually resulted in gender-neutral restrooms being installed on campus through their restroom revolution. And they also succeeded in bringing transgender gender queer and gender non-conforming issues into the limelight on campus. Key takeaways from this paper are the very revealing opinions of both of both the restroom revolution advocates who were a mix of gender non-conformists and allies who were straight people sympathetic to their cause and their opposition. In December 2001, the Stonewall students wrote a proposal to university administrators in which they stated, and I quote, 
As gender-variant people, we encounter discrimination in our daily lives. The most pressing matter, however, is our use of bathrooms in the, res in the residence halls in which we live. We are often subjecting ourselves to severe discomfort, verbal and physical harassment, and a general fear of who we will encounter and what they will say or do based on their assumption of our identities. And I unquote. Olaf Aprans, a writer for The Minuteman, which is an on-campus student publication, expressed his strong opposition by questioning the foundational motives behind the restroom revolution. And I quote, The most probable motive for the restroom revolution is not the need or want of transgender bathrooms, it is the desire for attention. Transgender students have been using gender-specific bathrooms for years without any complaints. Why the sudden outcry for transgender bathrooms? The answer is easy. The activists behind this movement are using a petty issue like bathrooms as a medium to throw their lifestyles in the face of everyday students. And I unquote. Biological identity supported by irrefutable genetic evidence, is also cited by the paper as one of the modes of opposition. And I quote, There are only two things that make me a man, and they are my X chromosome and my Y chromosome. People have the right to feel that they should not be the gender that God gave them. However, the fact that some people do not live in reality, or that some wish reality were not true, does not entitle them to a special bathroom in a public university. And I unquote. And please bear in mind, everybody, those quotes I've just mentioned are from that 2001 paper from um, the University of Massachusetts. And you can, you can read all of that at uh, my blog for teachers, richardjamesrogers.com, and I'll link to the specific blog post in this episode description. So what are my overall conclusions? Well, firstly, the concerns that transgender individuals have about their personal security and comfort when using restrooms seem legitimate. However, the concerns of women who do not wish to share washrooms with men are equally legitimate. And as we saw from the UMass article, women fought very hard for the right to have their own restrooms in the first place. You might remember me mentioning George Bernard Shaw and the Ladies' Sanitary Association, for example. It took a massive fight to get the first women's, women's uh, restroom to be installed in London in 1905. The issue of washrooms for all seems to be a classic example of an old conundrum that you can't please everyone. We can, however, aim to please the majority. The minority will have to adapt. Secondly, an architectural solution may be viable, but its application needs to be consistent, and this will require excellent international collaboration. It also needs to be cost-effective and provide suitable privacy for everyone. I can't see how this can be done, even when one applies Sanders and Stryker's design, without invasive CCTV systems in place, because how do you ensure people's safety and security in those in those situations thirdly an architectural solution may work in a shopping mall 
or other public place, but I'm not sure if it's a feasible solution for a school. Children are not as mature as adults. And we saw with the tweets that I mentioned about um, kids having sex and vaping in these gender-neutral toilets. And issues such as bullying, upskirting, inappropriate use of smartphones, silly and disruptive behaviour, etc. are difficult to police in a gender-neutral facility, again without invasive CCTV systems, some form of staffed duty, or an open communal space that removes comfort rather than adds to it. I will end by saying that schools would be well advised to avoid forcing all of their students to use gender-neutral toilets. The variables one has to deal with in such scenarios are immense and difficult to police or control or manage. If needs be, provide adequate male, female and gender-neutral toilets so that students can at least make choices that feel right for them. Okay, everyone, and that's the end of the blog post. Forgive me for my um, lack of good elocution during this episode. I'm still getting used to making these episodes, and um, I think sometimes I need to practice in the mirror before I actually go ahead and do these things. Um, But thank you very much for listening. I really hope that this was an interesting um, episode. It's a very important issue now. Because it's not just a small number of schools who are installing gender-neutral toilets. It's a lot of schools now. There's more and more each year. And as parents and as teachers and as people, we've really got to get clear on what we think about this. And we've really got to start speaking up and standing up for children who are being subjected to this. Because... If this was helping children, I wouldn't have a problem with it. I really wouldn't. If, you know, if children were happy using gender-neutral toilets and, you know, everyone was um, comfortable using them, I wouldn't have an issue. I really wouldn't. But that's not what we're seeing on the ground. Teachers are reporting that they're having to hold children by hand and take them to the staff toilets because they don't want to use gender-neutral restrooms. Um, They're finding that children, um, especially menstruating girls, are feeling uncomfortable using um, a washroom that boys could walk into. So, you know, we've really got to start talking about this and we've got to speak up and we've got to get strong. We can't just allow authorities to impose these things on our children and on our students. So that's where I'll end, everybody. Thank you so much. I will embed this um, episode into the blog post at richardjamesrogers.com. And if you're interested in a really popular award-winning book for teachers, then check out my book, The Quick Guide to Classroom Management, 45 Secrets That All High School Teachers Need to Know. And by the way, if you're listening to this in December 2021, it will be available for free on the Kindle um, Kindle store on the Christmas Eve, Christmas Day and Boxing Day. So the 24th, 25th and 26th of December of 2021. So check it out. And I'll probably do that every year, to be honest. So even if you're listening to this in future, future years, you'll probably find that um, all of my books on Amazon are free to download on the Kindle store 
on uh, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and on uh, Boxing Day, provided that uh, the systems don't change or something doesn't happen. Thank you very much, everybody. Take care. Enjoy your weekend. Um, enjoy teaching. Let's get through this pandemic together um, and uh, stay safe. And I'll uh, speak with everyone again next time. Thank you. <laughs>